So let's get into Hebrews. We are finishing up Hebrews 11. Um, and it was just really good last week. If you were here, we had Pastor Steve Reed from Doxology Church, also in Arlington, back with us. He um, was a member here, kind of grew up as a Christian in so many different ways here. And he was able to share a little bit of that story with us last week. And it was just really encouraging um, and helped us understand what faith actually looks like and what faith actually is. And so he walked us through that. And so this week is the end of chapter 11, which is this famous kind of um, explanation and illustration of what faith is that we found, find in the book of Hebrews. And today we're going to look at what faith endures, what faith endures. So last week we learned what faith is. And now we're going to look at what faith endures. And what we're going to see is that faith sees God in success and suffering. Faith sees God in success and suffering. And so endurance or perseverance is one of the primary themes of the book of Hebrews. And today we're going to spend a little time looking at some of the context that that perseverance actually goes through. And so we're going to look at those things. We're going to look at faith and success. What does faith look like during times of success? And we're also going to look at faith and suffering. What does faith look like in times of suffering? And then finally, we're going to look at faith and perfection. Faith and perfection. So those are the three kind of phases that we'll walk through this morning. Um, but first, let's go ahead and read this and open up God's word together. We're going to be in Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 40. You can um, follow along in a Bible. We have some in the seatbacks in front of you. If you brought one, that's fine. We'll also have the words up on the screen so you can read along. Hebrews 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign ar armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, reflecting on your people and how your people have endured, 
all of the ups and downs of life over centuries and centuries. Lord, we, we read this, and in some ways we're inspired, in some ways we're convicted, in other ways we're confused and perplexed. And yet we know, Lord, that you have put this in here to help us endure, to help us persevere, to remind us of our family lineage as your people. And so, God, I ask that we would, um, that we would be stirred to respond to you this morning, that we would look at all of the work that you have done through imperfect people, and that we would expect that to continue through your people today. And that ultimately, Lord, that we would all be looking forward to the day when that work is finished. And pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you want out of your life? It's a big question this morning. This text asks us that big question. Because as we are reading these people, especially kind of when it gets to the anonymous description of what all of these people endured, it can be very humbling and very convicting when you think about what these heroes of the faith went through and how they persevered through it, how they endured through it. And why it leads ultimately to the question, what you want out of your life, is because if you're not living for something, you're never going to be able to die for something. If you're not living for something, you're never going to be able to die for something. And so when you hear these descriptions of God's people, you realize, like, they are not messing around. This isn't something to trifle with. To take on the name of the Lord and to claim hold of him, to say that you belong to him, could end up costing you your life. So is it worth it? That's the question you have to ask. Is it worth it? If I were in a setting where if I identified with Christ publicly, I might be hunted down, dragged away from my family, and tortured to death. Is it worth it to publicly identify with Christ? Or would it be better to just pretend like I'm somebody else, like I don't belong to Christ? This is a hard question for us, specifically, I think, in our culture, in our Western world, because the self is sovereign. The self is ultimate. And so when we encounter something that asks of us to give our entire life for it, we think, oh, there has to be a miscalculation here. Something has gone wrong. Surely, it doesn't actually mean that. Because our faith and our twisted way of understanding it is like a spoke in the wheel of our life, helping us to live an awesome life, helping us to get the most out of what we want out of life. 
And so again, we're put back into that question, what do you want from your life? What do you want from your life? The people of God have been steeped through centuries, passed down through the families, passed down through the rituals that they would go through in the old covenant system to understand that the glory of God was the most ultimate pursuit. Now, there's so many times where those same people completely neglected that and started going after other things, started going after things of the world, going after other ways of um, worshiping God, a false God. But they were constantly brought back and reminded, no, the glory of God is your ultimate reward. It's your ultimate promise. God's glory, his very presence is what's ultimate. And so that has to be in our minds as we look at, as we look at success and suffering and what faith looks like there. Because if something else is in our minds, if something else is ultimate, then this is going to be really confusing and disorienting. And so the perspective that we are taking on here is that the Lord, his glory, is the ultimate purpose of your life. And you are only able to receive that through faith in Jesus. That's the whole big idea of Hebrews, is that the glory of God has been revealed in the Son of God as he came to earth, lived and died and resurrected, And that now by faith we receive him and he draws us near to God and we experience and partake and inherit the glory of God. And so let's dig into this and first see what our faith looks like in times of success. And the way that I summarize these first few verses here, so 32 through 35, and then 35 is kind of where that real heavy transition happens. But you can summarize this first section by dependence with abundance. Dependence with abundance. So faith in success is dependence in abundance. Let's look. We're not going to go through all of these because there's too many, and the author even says, Time would fail me, so we're not going to have time fail us. We're just going to pick up one, Gideon, and we're going to look at Gideon. And why is he in here? Why does he get placed in this section? Well, Gideon is a judge who is actually tasked with leading God's army. So we're going all the way back there, and he is tasked with destroying, leading the army of the Israelites against a foreign army against a hostile enemy, and he has a pretty good-sized army with him. He's pretty well-equipped. So there's an abundance that he has. And you probably remember this story, but the Lord starts whittling it down. He says, okay, start with this number. Now you have a little less, a little less, a little less. And pretty soon, he's left with 300 soldiers. And he's going against a much bigger army now. Why would the Lord do that? 
Because for Gideon, just for us, it's easy to depend on your abundance. It's easy to, during times of success, to push God to the side or not to see his hand in it. And so now you're starting to trust other things. You're starting to trust the visible things. You're starting to trust the things that make sense to everybody, not just to God's people. Go back with me, because this is a key in understanding how we can actually develop our faith in times of success. Verse 27 This is talking about Moses, but it's a principle of faith that I think will really help us engage these two different contexts. Verse 27 says that Moses, by faith, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, and then this part right here, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So Moses saw God who is invisible. I love that phrasing because what it means is that you have to see God with the eyes of faith because he's invisible, right? But it's a real seeing. It's a real experience. It's a real trust. Moses believed that God was who he showed himself to be. And that's why he left Egypt. And so Gideon, in the same way, understood that God was who? He's the Lord of hosts. That means the Lord of the heavenly armies. So if you actually believe that, if you're actually trusting that God is who he says he is, then if you have him, what else do you need? You don't need anything. And so Gideon, as he prepared to go into battle, he was trusting, it was demonstrated trust that, no, I believe that the Lord of hosts is with me. And so he is my success. He didn't depend on his abundance, but he depended on God with his abundance. And so how can we put that into practice? Oh, it always gets real. It always gets real. And this, I think, for us, well, both of these are going to hurt a little bit, but this one might be the one where we actually have to do some reflecting on what we want out of our lives. Because, frankly, we are in a land of ridiculous abundance. It's decadence. And one of the things I know from my life is when things are going well, it is really difficult to see God and to remember how real he is, how substantive he is. Because I have all these other things that are competing for my affection, for my attention, for my purpose. About 10 years ago now, I was running a long-distance relay race with a group of other crazy people over the mountains in Colorado. And this race was broken up where each runner ran three different runs over a period of like 24 hours. 
And the first one was, run was fine. I don't actually remember it, but I remember the second and the third run. The second run was overnight, and I was going for a pretty good distance, but it was like gradually downhill, gently downhill the whole way. And it was in the middle of the night, so it was nice and cool. And it was just, it was the most fun I've ever had running. I don't usually enjoy running, but it was really fun. And I was running faster than I normally do. I was going at a pretty good clip, and it's downhill, but I'm like in kind of a state of euphoria. Things are going really well. I'm enjoying myself. And so I crushed it, but I forgot who I was. <laughs> I forgot who I was, and I outran my pace. I wasn't grounded in it because it was so easy and enjoyable and fun. And so what happened is I finished that race, I got back in our little van, and we drove up to the next checkpoint, and when I tried to get out of the van, my quads like locked up, and they're like, we've had enough. <laughs> the third run was not as fun. It was uphill, so I needed those quads, and it hurt the whole way. I'll talk more about that in a minute. But here's, what, here's why I'm telling you this. Because just like on that run, our life can get going in a particular, or particularly enjoyable cadence. We can get into a rut that's really good and fun. And that's awesome. But one of the things that we are all tempted to do in that time is to forget who we are specifically forget that we are creatures. Forget that we are completely dependent on God, that he is the giver of that good gift. It's not something that you have earned or deserve. It's not something that you're entitled to. And so one of the, one of the lessons for us in faith and success is that we are to receive success as a gift, but to hold it very loosely. And so here's a couple of practical things you can think through. And these, none of these examples are going to be perfect. Um, it requires wisdom, but these are just helping you to see how can I actually start thinking about applying this if I'm in a season of success. If you get, just a, let's just say you get a huge bonus at work, and you get a massive bonus, kind of like a life-changing amount of money in some ways. If you are depending on your abundance, you might immediately buy a new house, buy a new car, things that you've wanted but you couldn't get until you got that bonus. You might up your standard of living. You might rise into a different echelon that you wanted to get to. And okay, that's great. The problem with it is that you're going to get used to that. You're going to get used to it. And so when that same level of abundance doesn't happen, it can create a crisis of faith. Because you may, as a Christian, have equated, oh, God rewarded me for being a good employee for all these years, and he wants me to receive this and to enjoy it. 
And so all of a sudden, you're attaching the blessing with your faith. And you're thinking, yeah, like that's, that's how it works. God's like a vending machine, and the currency you put in is faith, and you get out whatever you want, your selection. That's called the prosperity gospel. And the Bible is something very different than that. What about if you're, let's think of another one. What about socially? If you all of a sudden find your people, we all know that feeling, hopefully. Maybe not all of us do. But there are times in your life where you are going to feel very close to your family or to your friends. And it's going to be kind of like the golden years. And everything's going to be really easy and fun, and it's going to seem like everything is full of purpose. But then seasons change. Your friends get married and leave. Or they have kids and disappear for a couple years. (laughs) Or you move. Or you get married. And all of a sudden, you've lost that. Well, how you were using those golden years, that abundance, that social abundance, if you were using it for your enjoyment, for your pleasure, to give yourself meaning and purpose, then you were depending on your abundance. But instead, what if you used your social abundance to try and bless somebody else? So you're receiving it as a gift, but not to be held onto, but to be given? What if instead you had the mindset of a missionary with that and you say, I want more people to enjoy this? And so you reach out to the social outcasts, you reach out to the people that are harder to love, and you start actually operating in depending on God in those realms. What if instead of using that money to buy the car and the house, you made a gift to someone or to something, a cause. What if your generosity increased to such a high degree that now you have to depend on God to provide for you again if you want to replace your old car? You're depending in abundance, not on it. That's a couple of... There's a couple of examples. How we see God at work in your success is he is teaching you to remain dependent on him. So if you feel like you're there in your life right now, you feel like you're in a season of abundance, that is the challenge for you. To live for God's glory in it. And to remember to live in such a way that you continually Depend on him, not on what he gives you. And here's why this is so important. Because as quick as we are reading verse 35, it changes. So verse 35 is this transitional verse where it's talking about women receiving back their dead by resurrection. So that's great. That would be an identifier of success. What is dead has now been restored to me. But then we keep reading. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. 
so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. Just before this, we read about these people who escaped the edge of the sword, who stopped the mouth of lions, who quenched the power of fire. And so here is something that we have to get straight. Faith does not correspond to outcome. Faith does not correspond to outcome. You can't read this passage and understand faith in any meaningful way if you don't understand that believing does not guarantee you a specific worldly outcome, right? These, the same descriptor, all of these people operating by faith had very different realities, very different outcomes, different purposes that God was working through their lives. And so faith doesn't just go with success, but faith goes with suffering. And if you're looking to summarize kind of the essence of the type of suffering that is being described in these passages, I think it's rejection. In all of these things, all of these faithful people of God, they're being completely and utterly rejected. And they're being pressured to conform to the ways of the world. But they refuse. And so they suffer mocking and flogging, chains, imprisonment. They're stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword. They're poor. They're completely impoverished, so that the only way to clothe themselves is with skins of sheep and goats that still have the hair on them, wandering about in deserts and mountains, because that's the only place where it's actually safe for them. So the world has completely rejected these faithful people. And one of the things that I love about this passage is in verse 38, you see the heart of God come through the author's words. Because he just kind of rolls through the success stories and lists off what, they do, what, what they've done. But here he pauses and interrupts his train of thought. And he says, all of these people of whom the world was not worthy. So you see a specific tenderness and a specific glory that scripture assigns to those who are suffering for the name of Christ and suffering that rejection. Rejection is really difficult. We think about this, we hear this, and I think in the comfort of a normal Sunday morning, if we're not in much pain, we're pretty comfortable, we're not under threat of any kind, we're like, yeah, you know, we can, we can do that. We can be great. We can be great for God in that way. Like, I could suffer that. But is that true? And here, let's go back into my run, the hard part of the run. Going uphill, up those mountain paths, with my quads cramping, I was thinking to myself, this, the distance of this run is probably about half of what my last one was but I don't think it'll ever end. 
Because pain and rejection and any type of suffering, what it does is it completely causes the world to close in. And all you can think about is the next millisecond of pain. And it feels like it's never going to end. This is why when you're not enjoying something, it seems like time has slowed down so much. And so think about, think about how hard it is sometimes to see God in your suffering. God seems like he's extra invisible sometimes in the midst of suffering. And honestly, in so many different ways, suffering is going to isolate you even more so when you're suffering for your faith. When I was talking about this with some people from our church, um, I was told that oftentimes when you have persecution happening in Christian communities, the person who is being persecuted, the individual who is being per persecuted within the church would actually find themselves isolated from the rest of the church. The rest of the church would start to say, hmm, but do you really need to do that? Like, or, you know, oh, we don't want that to happen to us, so let's create a little bit of distance between us and that person. And so God can feel very invisible in those moments. And so how do you see God? How does the invisible God become visible to you unless it is through faith? Unless it is through trusting him? That even though you are enduring great pain, great discomfort, great op opposition, the Lord is glorified through it. And again, that is the purpose for your life. That's what you're wanting out of your life. And so now all of a sudden your pain is redeemed and it's actually even cherished by God. He sees it and he's with you in it. He will meet you in the midst of your suffering and make himself visible to you in a new way. And this, friends, is how he grows our faith. This is how he develops faith into his people, is he takes them through these different seasons and situations of life. You're going to go through success. You're going to go through suffering. And the Lord is going to be showing you how to trust him in it. And so if you're in a period of suffering, there's a couple of different ways I think that we respond that kind of try to push God out or to not see God's work in it. And one of those ways is to just pretend like you're not suffering. And I think this is really prevalent for a certain type of person who is attributed their faith equals I get good things. So that when you're going through something bad, you can't even look at what God might be doing through that. Because it's like unthinkable. But another way that we can also kind of push God out 
is to just give in to that temptation to close in on ourselves and to only see our pain without seeing the purpose. And this is not easy. I'm, I just want to say that. <laughs> this is not easy, and we learn it. We exercise it. We grow in it. But in all of your suffering, in all of your pain, the Lord has very clear purposes. One of them is that he wants you to fully trust him, even in the depths of pain. But another is that he wants to demonstrate to this world that the pain of his people is never in vain. And it's because your pain will stop. It will come to an end. It's not eternal. But the inheritance that you receive on the other side of that pain is eternal. It will never stop, and it will be visible for everyone. So let's look at faith and perfection. Verse 39 and 40, all these, talking about the entire chapter, this whole list, they're commended through their faith in varying degrees. Some of these are kind of like head scratchers while they're in here. I don't know. We'll have to talk about that at some point. But they're commended through their faith, but they didn't receive what was promised. They received a lot of stuff. They received kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They received a lot of things, but not what was ultimately promised. What was that? Well, look at how God worked with his people and what he was promising them all along. Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. Your, your descendants will be without number, and you will live in a land that I will show you. David, you are the king that is after my own heart, and on my throne, your descendant will sit eternally. The promise that God gave to his people was his kingdom. His kingdom is his dwelling place with his people. And ultimately, what was promised was a king, a perfect king. A king whose faith was perfect. A king whose life was perfect. Because that's one of the, is that they were perfected, not perfect. They needed to be made perfect. But what they received is perfect. This is so important for us to understand. Because if we make our relationship with God about our faith, instead of looking to Jesus, the perfecter of our faith, we're going to receive something different. We're not going to receive assurance. We're going to receive doubt. We're not going to receive joy. We're going to receive fear. Because we're going to see the impurities, the imperfections that will always be there. All of these people listed were extremely flawed people. If you read through the Bible, this is a list of incredibly flawed heroes. 
And God's people, the Israelites, they were not, they weren't ignorant of that. They all knew that they were waiting for something better than David, something better than Moses, something better than Gideon. And we have received that something better. And so here is what it looks like now for them to be made perfect with us. Let's go back to our series in Revelation, I don't know, a year ago, maybe two years now. I can't remember. At the end of Revelation, you have this beautiful picture, and it's spoken of in symbols. You have the 12,000 and the 12,000. You have 12,000, 12,000, 144,000. That's symbolic of this perfect number of the perfect people of God, the 12 disciples, the 12 patriarchs. All the people of God, all together, perfected, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And so all of these people, all of these heroes, even the anonymous and obscure ones that were martyred, that no one ever knew about, they are there, and we are with them in Christ. Imagining yourself there, it kind of makes you like a kid again, where you see a hero, and you're going to want to go up and talk to them, and find out about them, and just say thank you. But the picture that we have in Revelation is that the focus of all of those people is on the lamb at the throne. And so us being perfected with God, we, like the catechism said this morning, we don't look to saints, we look to Christ. We don't receive our salvation by examples. We receive it by grace because he is the gift. He is the faithful one that through faith we receive and he is our inheritance and he is the one that makes the invisible God visible to us. And right now, we're holding on to that with the hands of faith. We are trusting him in success and suffering. But there will come a time where we see it with our eyes, with our resurrected eyes, where it will be realized, where all of our success and all of our suffering will be summarized and wrapped up and concluded in the king who brings his kingdom to this earth and rules with us. And so, bringing that perspective, making the invisible God visible in your success, in your suffering, is how you will learn again and again, over and over, to trust him. It's how your faith will grow. It's how you will endure. It's how you'll persevere. So make that what your life is about. Don't allow yourself to get lulled to sleep by success. Don't allow yourself to become despairing in your suffering. But look for how the Lord is growing in you a faithful heart, a heart that trusts him and is ready to receive our eternal king. Please pray with me. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this people that you have called out of obscurity and you have made to be your people. We thank you for um, the example that they are, but we also more importantly thank you that they all point towards the realization of your promises in the person and work of Jesus. And so, God, I ask that as, as your word tells us just in the very next sentence, that we would lift up our eyes, that we would look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and that we would have endurance as we see him in all of the circumstances of our lives. Lord, we thank you for that wonderful gift. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.